Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or Stitcher. Our guest today is Garrett Jones, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of Hive Mind, How Your Nation's IQ Matters So Much More Than Your Own. Garrett, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I uh, wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons. One, I read your book when it came out, and it's very interesting. It would be a little weird if I had you on the program if uh, I thought the book was really boring, but that's not the case. The reason why I thought it might be good to have you on now is there was a recent dust-up on Twitter with the author and yeah. provocateur Nassim Taleb. One of his big things is the idea that a lot of academic subjects and areas are kind of BS and fraudulent or whatever. And he was saying recently that he thought that was true of IQ. Uh, and there were various people on yes. Twitter who tried to convince him that, no, this was actually a serious thing. One of Taleb's heuristics or kind of tests yes. for whether an intellectual is actually worth his salt is, does he deadlift or not? Right. I, I do deadlift. And that that was enough to that was enough to grant me a, a few weeks of grace. <laughs> okay, so you know, obviously, his general view of IQ, uh, I think, is probably shared by a lot of people, perhaps throughout the political spectrum, of thinking, oh, you know, it's just kind of it's made up, or it's just all about having a lot of money. Then that makes you really smart. Uh, you know, you get a lot of good education, a lot of tutors. It's kind of a meaningless thing, and it is also the case. I should add that there are some people online who are really into IQ. Well, maybe we should start with there. So like not saying that IQ is all yes. important. Uh, and in fact, part of your book is that in the ind- case of the individual, it isn't all important. But what reason do we have for thinking that IQ is a measure that uh, we ought to take seriously? So at the individual level, like your IQ has a reasonably strong relationship with right. how much say, education you have or how well you do in school by normal measure. It explains about half, loosely speaking, about half the differences um, in educational outcomes. That's what I mean when I say a correlation of points. And uh, but then when you look at IQ and its relationship with log wages, with the basically the percentage change in your wages, um, there the relationship drops a bit. It drops to about uh, 0.3. And so, so I can call that a moderate relationship. So the link between IQ and your wages, IQ explains less than half the story in wage differences across the rich countries. So it's not nothing and it's not everything. And using the estimates that I liked in the book, when I look at what labor economists, when labor economists check to see how much IQ predicts higher wages, uh, my way of summing up the data is that uh, one IQ point is associated with 1% higher wages. And to give a sense of what one IQ point means, um, two random people in the population will differ by about 15 IQs. So that's the standard deviation of IQ. So that means if you pick two random people in the population, they're going to differ in IQ by about 15 points. And those two people will probably differ in their wages by about 15 plus percent. The IQ optimists like to say, well, maybe it's more like 30 percent. The IQ pessimists will say it's more like 7 percent. But I pick, a num- I pick a number in the middle. So, I mean, 15 percent is not nothing, but it's not everything. That's not going to explain the wealth of nations. But the real a reason to think that the skills that are picked up by an IQ test are actually causing good things rather than just predicting good things, that really gets into what economists like to call microstructure, foundations, foundational causation. Um, 
And so my favorite, one of my favorite little facts is IQ predicts something a lot like brain speed. So it predicts the ability to quickly respond to stimuli. So it predicts something other than just, can I pay attention to the teacher? Can I follow orders correctly? Can I be a mindless robot? It predicts basically something like quickness. So if I if a flat light flashes in front of you and your job is to press a button as soon as the light flashes on, um, there is a small relationship between people with higher IQ scores and people who press those buttons faster. People who are people who do better on IQ tests say that they're more they're more patient. They act more patiently in a wide variety of settings. To them, one dollar today is likely to mean much less to them than two dollars a year from now. Like they're willing to wait for a big reward. So if IQ is associated with something like quickness something like patience. These are real functions that help you do better in the real world. So being able to get things quickly, being able to keep a lot of facts in your head, being able to give thought for the morrow, these are things that are obviously going to affect you in your real life. It's not, um, this isn't just about whether you were raised in a nice home and whether you learned to answer some puzzle questions correctly. As is indicated in the subtitle of the book, having a higher IQ does correlate with having a higher income to a degree within wealthy societies. Those differences are kind of dwarfed in comparison to the differences between rich and poor societies, right? So to take the classic case, you know, a dumb person in the United States is likely to have a higher wage than a above average intelligence person in Zimbabwe, exactly. say, or to take an even more classic case, North Korea versus South Korea, whether you were born and live above or below the 38th parallel, that matters a lot more how well you can do on one of these so, IQ um, tests. Um, that's where my, what takes up the bulk of my book. The kind of people who do well on IQ tests do tend to earn more and have, tend to have uh, more education and a lot of good outcomes, better retirements. But that is small compared to the cross-country relationship that I and others have found with the stati- in statistic, with cross-country statistical comparisons. So a lot of people have run these kinds of cross-country sort of statistical horse races. And what they keep finding is that, for instance, these test scores, whether you use IQ scores or these international math and science tests, these are much more robust predictors of the nation's prosperity than the nation's years of education. There's a lot of emphasis on years of education, boosting years of education in different countries. But whenever you run a horse race between years of education and any kind of test score, IQ or not, the test scores win hands down With uh, in almost every study. I know of one outlier um, that was run a little bit unusually. I mentioned that in a footnote. Then the question is, why is it that, that these tests, if these test scores are so great, that is where a lot of our focus should be. That is still not the case. It should be even more the case that test scores, what causes high test scores matters a lot and should be given greater, you know, greater research effort. My question is why this is true. Can you maybe give our listeners a sense of, okay, rich, richer countries have higher test scores or higher average IQ scores of people than poorer countries? We use 100 as sort of the, just the standard for average IQ. That's like picking 100 degrees for boiling point in the Celsius system. So if we define the US and the UK as at 100, then the countries in East Asia that we're familiar with, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, uh, and Singapore is not East Asian, but it's majority Chinese. Those countries are all around 106 compared to the U.S. 100. So, you know, like uh, noticeably more. Countries in uh, Latin America and the greater Middle East tend to be around the 90 average, so not quite a standard deviation. And there is more debate about how what the average scores are in sub-Saharan Africa. The uh, pessimists put numbers around 70. 
And the more or less optimist, the people I put more weight on in the book, I put it around 76 or 80. So we're talking about sizable differences by any measure. But if these were just folks within a country, you would be talking about people who might have 30, 40 percent wage differences from the very lowest countries to the very highest countries. Those are sizable differences, but the wealth of nations isn't 30 to 40 percent differences. Differences across countries are more like 3,000 percent. So yeah, that's the kind of range of scores we're looking at. I have a special section where I look at some very smart people who uh, critiqued these cross-country IQ scores and especially put effort to pick apart the reliability of the data from sub-Saharan Africa. And a great scholar named Jelty Weikert says he did great work trying to pick apart these data. And he ultimately said, well, sub-Saharan African scores do seem, you know, they're they're lower. They're definitely lower than those of European scores, even when he throws out all the questionable data. Um, and that shows up in these international math and science scores. Economists study this and they know that tests of mathematical proficiency, of the ability to read complex uh, complex literary documents, books, essays. Uh, this is th- Those scores really are lower in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. They're outliers everywhere. But the PISA, TIMS, PEARLs, these international studies widely used of test scores, they tell the same story as the IQ tests. They correlate almost perfectly. Countries that do well in the IQ test are doing well in these other international math, science, reading tests. I always mention people and say they don't, they don't believe in cross-country IQ tests. I say, okay, then ignore them. Just use cross-country math, science, and reading tests that are run by international agencies. That tells the same plot. So I have a question for you, and this is, uh, I, I certainly don't mean to ask a question about preparing for a test, but how do we improve our national IQs other than, you know, simply preparing people for an IQ test doesn't have any meaningful impact, I'm sure. The short answer is for the richest countries, I don't know. It's much clearer that good educational interventions and good public health interventions will matter for the poorest country. For the richest countries, it's really hard to tell because a lot of innovations are tried and the long run effects tend to be on the small side. We've done a lot of good things by getting public health right for most people and by having K through 12 that gets kids to read. I, I don't mean to give a counsel of despair, but um, when so many bright people have been looking for so long for ways to reliably raise any kind of test score, this is something where we have diminishing marginal returns to effort seem to be really hitting us. And so that's why I think most policy reforms should be devoted toward other things. Again, I wish there were easy answers, and this might be one where even education researchers well, me- do this all day long don't tell you that they have they have the, the, the magic bullet for let me follow up on that because you know my understanding is that in IQ research there is something known as the Flynn effect, which is uh, people have noticed that over time people within a country in the United States say tend to answer more and more of the questions right. So IQ test the average is always renormed to 100, but if you were to take uh, people who were uh, taking the test today say and give them a test that was normed from a generation or two ago, the average IQ would be considerably above 100. It's somewhere in the range of, you know, perhaps a standard deviation higher, 15 points higher, depending, you know, you go back a generation. Does that suggest that even if we don't know exactly how to do it, we, we must be doing something right? A phenomenon that was discovered by a philosopher, not by a psychologist, by Jim Flynn, who was kind enough to blurb my book. He uh, couldn't get a job in the U.S. because of political discrimination against his viewpoints. And back then, the persecuted positions were on the left. Uh, he's actually from the D.C. area originally. His family's from here. Yeah, so he was basically more or less driven into exile. It's not too much to say that. He couldn't get an academic job in the U.S. for his politics. So yeah, yeah so right, the Flynn right, effect right. is a sign that there are real environmental changes 
And what everyone who looks at the Flynn effect, they try to figure out two things. First, is this a genuine increase in mental ability? Or is it just sort of a, a narrow test-taking ability uh, that's been improving? So for instance, one explanation for the Flynn effect, a partial explanation, is people nowadays are more likely to guess on the multiple choice questions. And there's no penalty from, for getting a question wrong. So compared to a few decades ago, if you have people bubbling in the multiple choice questions, even when they don't have an answer, they'll get a few questions right. That's not what we're looking for. Right? That's not what we're hoping for, a real increase in mental ability. The other optimistic stories are... Well, people are taller than they used to be a few decades ago. Um, So there's clearly been some public health interventions that really affect people. Maybe when the brain is just a part of the body. So maybe when people are getting healthier, their brains are getting healthier. The problem is, is that there are a thousand explanations and they all sort of have the patina of plausibility. And there are no true experiments that can tell us what the actual cause is of the Flynn effect. So there's some people saying these phenomenon are just ephemeral. They're superficial increases in IQ. And some are saying it's really obviously um, our brains are working better than they used to be. Flynn's own explanation is that our life has become more like the IQ test. The people in the old days didn't worry about systematizing the facts in their head, but people today, partly through our educational system, just systematize more. We're less anecdotal and more systemic. We're more interested in finding, say, commonalities uh, than differences. And that's Flynn's story is that is a version of this. We actually haven't become smarter. We're just using our brains in ways that are more like the tests. The Flynn effect gives you reason for hope and gives you reason for believing that there are ways to raise IQ scores. At the same time, it's hard to tell whether even the existing increases are mostly real or mostly just epiphenomenal, mostly uh, meaningless. I hope that someday people will win some Nobel Prizes, whether in medicine and physiology or in economics, for coming up with a real answer to where the Flynn effect comes from and how to turn it into a real policy tool. It deserves that. But so far, there is no grand solution, just an enormity of puzzles. In that way, it feels a lot like macroeconomics, especially the study of business cycles. We've got a bunch of weird little facts, and then organizing them all together has been very difficult. If we don't know how to go about improving our national IQ, is part of the answer artificial intelligence? AI certainly has the ability to solve a lot of our cognitive problems. But if the middle chapters of my book are right, the biggest problems we have to solve are these institutional ones. And running good market-oriented institutions with something like the neutral rule of law, something like a good degree of competition. This, as I emphasize, is cognitively demanding. That's mentally demanding. It's hard to see the invisible hand. It's hard to believe in the invisible hand, and yet the invisible hand is real and important. And what I need is an AI that can convince people that Uber surge pricing is really a good idea because the AIs aren't going to be allowed to vote anytime soon, but people are. And people don't get, in many cases, the power of markets, the power of flexible prices to coordinate human behavior and get us a lot of prosperity. Have you seen the new Captain Marvel movie? I mention it because in there, there's yeah. the alien race, yeah. the Kree, who are ruled by a super intelligent AI, but it doesn't really seem to do anything except like it, you know, gives maybe some general orders to human beings and then through their own sense of collective solidarity, they do whatever the AI tells them to do. It's not like the robots are taking all the jobs or serving people or whatever. Maybe that's what a lot of people need is they need an AI that can show the power of the invisible hand. Let me ask you the reverse causation question, right? So the common critique of your book is, okay, yes, richer countries have higher IQ on average, but that's because if a country is richer, then it can afford to spend more on education and do other things to make people smarter. We know that 
rich countries are able to produce more physical capital, machines and robots. But nobody says, well, therefore, the machines, equipment, tools, and robots aren't doing anything useful. What we know is that's a virtuous cycle. So rich countries can produce more machines, but the machines help produce more prosperity. That's just a normal virtuous cycle. We're totally comfortable with this in social science. So to the extent this reverse causation critique is true, it, if anything, may strengthen my argument. I mentioned this in the last two pages of the book. I say that this means that if we can find ways to raise IQs in some countries, then we can get what I call a Flynn cycle, where if you find some policy intervention that raises IQ five points in a poor country, you're going to get people who are more patient, who are better informed, um, who are more cooperative, more trusting of their neighbors on average. That's going to help make the nation more productive. And if the nation becomes more productive and more prosperous, then that'll raise IQs even more, hence keeping the cycle moving. So you can get a virtuous circle here. So I hope there's reverse causation because that means that my forward causation um, gets an extra. Let's delve a little bit more into the forward causation evidence or hypotheses. You, you alluded to some of the elements, uh, people with higher IQs might be more patient or more cooperative. So what is your story of how it is uh, and what's the evidence to think that having uh, higher IQs on average would lead to these beneficial effects? Uh, so there's a, a robust literature, both in economics and psychology, finding that people do better on IQ tests, are more patient, they're more forward-looking. And if you're more forward-looking, you're on average going to be more frugal. And people who are more patient, that means they're more willing to sacrifice one thing today in exchange for a reward in the future. That may show up in something as simple as saving money at the bank, so that there's more money at the bank to lend out to other investors, which helps grow the economy. It could be something like, I'm going to be nice to a person today in hopes that that person will reciprocate in the future. It will build a long-run relationship of cooperation. And it turns out that there's actually one of the great results of all of game theory is finding known as the folk theorem, which finds that if people are really patient and they're playing a game where in the short run you have an incentive to try to stick it to the other person and rip the other person off. If that game is repeated every day, every week, every month, forever, all of a sudden that one-shot game where you think like, I better eat as much of this pie as I can because otherwise there's going to be nothing left. Instead, you say, well, why don't we just take turns eating a lot of the pie? Why don't we just share it evenly for a long time? And we can have like a nice pro-cooperation culture where we get things done together. One version of this, I think of it with college students always understand this one, a version of the free rider problem. I would like a clean bathroom in my shared dorm, but um, what's even better than having a clean bathroom is, a, is um, me not putting effort into cleaning the bathroom. So I want a free ride on the efforts of others. So if you're roommates with people for just a week, you might just let the bathroom you know, get dirty. But if you're living with the same people for well, four years of college, you might think, well, I'm going to chip in today and clean, and maybe the other person will clean tomorrow. And we'll keep this win-win cooperation going. People who give more thought for the morrow are more likely to engage in that cooperation, both in theory and it turns out in the lab as well. So there's a, a number of a, a couple of studies now that have looked at these cooperation games where people play the same cooperation game against somebody else a few times. And it turns out that smarter groups are in fact more cooperative. When you have two high IQ pairs of players, two high IQ players playing against each other, they are more likely to cooperate with each other in these repeated cooperation games than when you have uh, two lower IQ people playing against each other. So theory and evidence match up quite well. IQ is linked to patience in practice. Patience is linked to cooperation in theory. And IQ is linked to cooperation in practice. And I think that cooperating with strangers is the essence of uh, holding good institutions together. So I think that's that's a that's a point that's too big to ignore. Um, the link between 
intelligence and social intelligence. You wrote the book in 2015. A few years have passed. We've had a major election and a pretty active news cycle ever since. If you were going to write an addendum to the book uh, to cover the period well, since I mean, the time you wrote it. The rich countries have continued to stay the rich countries. Um, thank goodness so far. The one element that could have made it into the book that didn't is the link between IQ and risk-taking and IQ and um, risky stock market investments. So there's a, there's, there's a link that I completely left out because I thought it would be a little bit superfluous. But there's a lot of good research showing that high IQ people behave much more prudently in complicated financial markets. It turns out that smart people are more, will, more likely to um, invest in, in, stock, in the stock market, even when you take account of the person's income and education and other kind of stuff. It's even true within families. Turns out high IQ people are also more likely to um, make smart decisions with those stocks, like following a buy and hold strategy rather than trading all the time. So I do tend to think that making complicated, long run financial decisions where you're willing to say, no, I'm I'm in a rich country. I'm probably not going to starve to death because there's a social safety net. I can afford to take a risk in the financial markets. I think that tends to have strong pro-social elements in the long run. I think of it as an illustration of this link between intelligence and social intelligence, that smarter people are willing to and more willing to invest in these very complicated, ambiguous, kind of opaque financial markets that yield a greater but riskier return to you as a person, but can fund some of the craziest, most promising ideas for the world as a whole. The link between IQ and risk could have totally made an extra chapter. If they ever asked me to do a second edition, that's what goes in. Let me ask about the hot topic of immigration. Um, One reason I didn't dive into it in great detail is because I didn't have good data on how much test scores, even not just IQ scores, but how much test scores change for people who migrate from one country to another. Um, And so I didn't have any, like I liked, my goal in my book was to stick to the most thorough, most unambiguously clear data possible. And so I didn't have great data on this. So like I say in the introduction, this isn't a book about where IQ comes from. It's about where your nation's IQ takes you. My comparative advantage is telling people about the effects of IQ, not the causes. But that said, let me, it's important to address this, right? That's what my editor ultimately told me. He says, make sure you talk. About it. Um, you know, most of the channels in the middle of my book are about um, institutions. And I think that's the big game there, the big angle. So the grand question is whether new migrants Suppose some migrants come in from high test score countries. So suppose you're thinking about a country, you're thinking about a country sort of in the middle of the pack. Instead of always talking about America and whether things are going to get messed up, let's think about a country that's sort of in the global middle of the pack, right? Mexico. Let's think about Mexico. So Mexico's trying to decide, should we, ha- should we massively welcome a vast number of yeah. uh, people from uh, China, Singapore, Japan, uh, maybe give them, say, the equivalent, so give them, say, tax- 10-year tax holiday if you move here. So if they try to get 10, 10, 15 million folks to move from countries with really high test scores, and let's say they're successful at getting people who have pretty high scores, and maybe their kids have high scores too. What do I really expect to happen? I think a lot of it turns on the question of whether these folks get involved in government one way or the other. Do they become voters in the new country and start you know, shaping the political system? Or are they more like guest workers who are just sort of visiting, hanging out, working at a job, and then going home? I suspect that it's these political channels where change happens mostly over decades, not over years, where group IQ differences are likely to matter the most. But I think countries that go with guest worker programs where folks aren't as integrated into the political and even social life of the country, those folks probably aren't going to have as much of an effect on the national prosperity. There'll be more of a run-of-the-mill microeconomics benefit of immigration. So if you want the -the run-of-the-mill microeconomics benefit of immigration, where like bringing in skilled people means you get some workers and 
get some extra engineers who can solve some problems. Macroeconomists could talk about that great. That's already handled. I don't expect any grand externalities from that. What I do expect grand externalities is when people plant roots in their new country, um, raise their children there, their children grow up in the political system, start getting involved in politics. And if, this is a big if, if those scores are persistent across generations, um, yeah, that's when I expect the, the political changes to happen. Is that second generation uh, when there's grand political involvement from new folks who move in. A lot of great economists, including Lutz Hendricks, he's one I'd recommend, L-U-T-Z, Lutz Hendricks, uh, does good work on you know, how much selectivity there is in, in folks coming to America in particular. I think something like 80 plus percent of immigrants from India have at least a college that's degree as compared to you know about 30 percent for the native-born population here. They're not a randomly selected group of folks. So even once, but I was assuming the can opener for the sake of argument, that you solve the, you solve the selection problem, perhaps through a Canada-style um, point system, right? You know, if Mexico said, let's have a Canada-style point system for immigration and anybody who gets a certain number of points, instead of just mm-hmm. getting a visa, right. they get, say, a 10-year tax holiday. That would be a, a worthy proposal for further work. I mentioned this briefly in an old essay I wrote for the Asian Development Bank, um, something like that. The idea of a tax holiday or even a subsidy for highly skilled immigrants to middle-income countries, because so many of us in sort of this in the punditry world spend way too much of our time thinking about how to make the best countries slightly better. And the great puzzle for economics is finding the ways to make the poorer countries, even the middle-income countries, much more prosperous. If there are any uh, Mexican government officials listening, I'm totally happy to talk about this uh, policy proposal. I'm not kidding. Podcasting opens one up to a great new audience. (laughs) Uh, yes, no, that's absolutely. Right. Yeah, it's again with Stanford University Press. Well, the idea is that we could have pure democracy. At the very least, we want representative democracy in almost all cases. And most of us like the idea of an independent judiciary where there are these judges who really don't get voted on and who kind of stick around forever. So all of us believe that 100% democracy is bad. As I make clear in the early chapter of my book, like uh, 0% democracy is also terrible. Um, the question is, what's the bliss point? Is there is there the equivalent of a democracy Laffer curve, sort of a bliss point level of democracy? What I argue is, is that in the rich democracies, we have a little too much democracy, and um, we'd be better off if our politicians had slightly longer terms, like in the U.S. Senate. We'd be slightly better off if there were more powerful independent agencies, like the Federal Reserve. And we'd be better off if we had just some ways to give slightly more weight to more informed voters. And one thing I propose is that Perhaps in countries that have a lower and an upper house, instead of the upper house being a Senate, the house of the old, we could turn it into a sapientum, a house of the wise. When that book comes out, we will have to have you back on to discuss it in full. Uh, Our guest today has been Garrett Jones. Garrett, thank you for joining us. 